This podcast is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Now available, the Fuller Leadership Scholarship for students who begin the Certificate of Christian Studies in spring of 2019 or summer of 2019. This new scholarship will cover up to 100% of certificate's tuition cost for select students and is designated for ministry and marketplace leaders looking for new ways to impact their congregation, community, and calling. Take courses in the areas like missional churches and leadership, Christian ethics, dynamics of power and gender in Christian leadership. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash leadership scholarship. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. This week's conversation is brought to you by Smith & Helwes Publishing. Smith & Helwes provides books, studies, and commentaries for preachers, laypeople, and questioning Christians alike. With books like Preaching Punchlines, The Ten Commandments of Comedy by Susan Sparks, A Rabbi and a Preacher Go to a Pride Parade by Burt Montgomery, Gaining a Heart of Wisdom by Barry Jones, and The Sun is Up, One Minister's Awakening to Racial Reconciliation by Martha Dixon Curse, you are bound to find what you're looking for. Visit us at hellwis.com, that's hellwis.com, and use the code PODCAST at checkout to receive 10% off your order through June the 30th. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's conversation uh, deserves a better introduction than I can come up with. Uh, Jim Wallace is a New York Times best-selling author, speaker, president, and founder of Sojourners, uh, commentator on religious, ethical, and public life matters, and spiritual advisor to President Barack Obama. Jim, thank you for joining the conversation. Great to be here, and also a Little League baseball coach. Oh, nice. <laughs> for my boys who are way beyond Little League now, but for 11 years and 22 seasons, that's the most fun thing that I did. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I guess maybe the most pressing question uh, with, with you being a Michigan State grad is how do you feel about Coach Bayline uh, leaving uh, his post at Michigan? Well, uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a little biased at Michigan State. And uh, uh, so Tom Izzo, somebody, I, I actually have met, met him and we, we've had some conversations. But when they invited me back for my to do a commencement at Michigan State. I said, it's very kind of you to invite somebody back who, when he was last here, shut down the university. <laughs> so <laughs> I was back in, when I was a student, we were middle of Vietnam and racial justice at Kent State and all that. So we had a very active time. But um, uh, Tom Izzo, who my boys just idolized, took us to a, a private practice with the basketball team. So my son said, I, did, I know I'm being spoiled, but I love it. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, so, you know, Izzo has has his number. I think he I think he beat him. Uh, you know, I think time I think so. Play. Yep. Yeah. Time and time again. So you know, those have been following your work for years, uh, know it intimately. But I I guess maybe is you know who who is Jim outside of the vocational stuff? Well, um, I already said one thing. You left off my bio was a little league baseball coach. And we live right next to the field for the league baseball. So for 11 years and 22 seasons, I coached both my, my sons and one's 
in college now and playing college baseball, and the other one is in high school still and wants to play college baseball. So uh, Joy has a sign outside our house. It says uh, on the door now, it says, this family has been interrupted by the baseball season. <laughs> so so uh, being Coach Jim and uh, Luke's dad and Jack's dad on that, on that field is a wonderful space. It's literally next to our house, but it's a very uh, uh, precious and contemplative space where I can not be all the Jim Wallace stuff, but Coach Jim and Luke's dad and Jack's dad, which I love being. So it's a special place for me. Mm. They're they're way beyond Little League now, though. So now I'm just a fan, just a parent fan. So. Well, it's been nearly 50 years since the Sojourner mm-hmm. community started and 49 years since you published the Post-American. Um, walk us through the early years of this movement and where y'all thought this thing was going. Well, of course, being an evangelical, I should probably start when I was saved and how I was saved, right? Uh, we, I was, we had our little Plymouth Brethren Church, we had a revival preacher coming uh, on a Sunday night and all the unsaved kids had to sit in the front row. My parents were worried about me. I'm, I was unsaved and I'm getting up in years. I'm, I'm six now. And so they, they were concerned. So there I was, this preacher, and he pointed his finger right at me and said, if, you're, if Christ came back tonight, your mommy and daddy would be taken to heaven and you would be left all by yourself. Well, it got my attention, and I realized I'd have a five-year-old sister to support. So I asked my mom how to fix this, and she said, "God loves you, and just wants you to 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 you know live your life for what God wants in the world." I said, "That's cool." So I signed up. My first conversion. There are many others, but the one that took me in the direction I have been in ever since was the one where uh, there was something I'm listening out of my city of Detroit, fifteen, sixteen. I'm paying attention, I'm reading papers, I'm hearing the news, uh, hearing conversations. And something really big seemed really wrong in my city. But nobody in my white church and white school and white neighborhood would, would, would talk about it. They wouldn't talk about it. So I tell young people today, trust your questions and follow them to wherever they take you. And mine took me into the, what we call back in the inner city of Detroit. <laughs> And I knew there were black churches, but I'd never been to one or heard anybody from one. So I went there, and they took me in as a teenage kid. And then I took jobs alongside young young men my age in Detroit, but they're black and I was white. And I quickly learned that we lived in different countries, though in the same city. And I was coming back from one of those uh, epiphanies I had in those days, and an elder in my church took me aside and said, Jim, you have to understand, Christianity has nothing to do with racism. That's political. And our faith is personal. And that's the night that I left in my head and my heart, the church I'd been raised in. And they were happy to see me go because they were asking questions they didn't want to have asked. So I went to Michigan State and I joined the movements there, civil rights, um, Vietnam, always racism, always poverty. And um, and I wasn't a Christian, and in fact, none of the Christians were on our side for any of that in those days. But I wanted, out of all those years, you know, when you have death threats in your dorm room in those days, and uh, tear gas and police and all that stuff, uh, we I 
decided I wanted to be what I called then, I still have an activist, I wanted to change the world, but I needed a foundation for it. And I wasn't, I'd read Ho Chi Minh, Che Guevara and Karl Marx, but I wasn't convinced by them. So probably because I'd never gotten shed of Jesus, even though the ch- church had shed me, uh, I went back to the gospels. I found this Sermon on the Mount that, that turns the world literally upside down, uh, the Beatitudes, and I never heard that before. Never a sermon in my church on the Sermon on the Mount in a white evangelical church. But Matthew 25 was my text that turned me around, and I call it the It Was Me text. <laughs> I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was naked. I was a stranger, meaning immigrant refugee. I was sick. I was in prison, and you weren't there for me. And Lord, when do we see you hungry and thirsty and naked, immigrant, mass incarcerated, not having any health care? Either as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. So um, that turned me around. Most radical thing I'd ever heard or read. Here's the Son of God saying, what you do to those who are most forgotten, most marginalized, most outside, most vulnerable, most poor, uh, how much you, how you treat them is how you love me. So it's going to be a follower of Jesus, not a, not a Christian yet, but a follower of Jesus. So instead of going to law school, which was my plan and going to politics, I decided to go to seminary, get my faith grounded and settled. Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, which is was the leading evangelical seminary in those days, and I wanted to have an argument with my own tradition. So that's where I went, and the first week or two, we did a study, a group of us, all the passages in the Bible about the poor, everything. We found 2,000 verses about the poor, the vulnerable, uh, wealth, poverty, all that. And so one of my colleagues who's still with me here at Sojourners took a pair of scissors and cut out of the Bible every single reference to the poor. It took him a long time. It was all on the floor. Our Bible was full of holes, and it was in shreds. I'd take it around me to preach. I'd say, brothers and sisters, this is the American Bible. It's full of holes. Let's all get our scissors and start cutting because we pay no no attention. So for for me, this wasn't just political. You know, I always say now, don't go left, don't go right, go deeper. I got kicked out of the church as a kid to found the left student was my time. I'm not afraid of the left. I'm from the left, but I chose Jesus over the left. <laughs> and they are always the same. So we began to meet and talk and pray. And, and out of that came sojourners who then called post-American. And um, I remember uh, Ron Sider. I just did a, I just uh, introduced him for his his uh, retirement lecture at Palmer Seminary last week. Wonderful moment with my old dear friend. We did a thing called the Chicago Declaration on Evangelical Social Concern. Nineteen. Uh, we started in '71 with Post Americans in '72, and we had all the young evangelicals: John Perkins, Tony Campolo, Ron Sider. I was the youngest of the group. But we had, and then we had the older established evangelists, Carl Henry, Heather Crusade Today, Frank Gableine, Brenner Ground, serious uh, centrist established leaders. And we did the declaration together. And I was the author of the final one in the last night, the final edited version, and Carl Henry and I worked on it. And it, it, it took what the elder said to me that that's all politics 
it's not personal. And it said what I learned later after I came back to my faith, God is personal, but never private, personal, but never private. So we put that out and that declaration got national coverage and attention. And so for 10 years, for 10 years, our first 10 years, we were the young evangelicals changing the face of evangelicalism. That's what we were doing. And all the leaders, the older ones coming with us, Billy Graham did, they all did, that it's got to be social justice too. Billy Graham, in my first meeting with him a long time ago, said, says, I want people to know that I agree with so much of what you're saying. My vocation is the personal gospel of Jesus, but yours is, is helping people understand what that means. What are the social implications of that? So I want to work together. And we're hearing that from all these leaders. Uh, but then in 1983, political operatives, Richard Vigory, Paul Weirich, and uh, Tim Dolan, and they would tell you the same thing. I'm telling you now, they're proud of what they did. Political operatives in the Republican Party went to Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, and said, I'll make you household names in America because no one knew who they were if you give me your list. And he was the direct male guru. And, you know, he and I are agree on capital punishment. We're against it. He's Catholic. So we become friends now <laughs> about that. But he said, we, we, we did it. It wasn't a theological conference. or a, it, it, was, it was politics. And that's how the religious right was created, the moral majority, all the rest. So from then on, we were the alternative to the religious right, from young evangelicals changing evangelicalism to the alternative to the religious right. And so we've been doing that for a long time. In 2004, the election, Bush and Kerry and the press said that Bush carried the values of voters. And E.J. Dion, the columnist here in D.C., says, Democrats discovered God in the exit polls of 2004. <laughs> and so uh, my book, God's Politics, was going to come out that spring, but they moved it up. Harper's moved it up, and it came right after that, and so became an automatic bestseller. And so we were doing God's Politics, why the right gets it wrong and the left doesn't get it. That created some space for a while for a whole new conversation that wasn't. But now we're headed for that again because the contradictions between what it means to follow Jesus and the behavior uh, and the life and the values and the policies of Donald Trump are so antithetical that even Joe Scarborough, Morning Joe, says, look at how this violates the Beatitudes in Matthew 25. <laughs> so there's such a contradiction between to be a follower of Jesus and Donald Trump that it's uh, polarized the country. So Bishop Curry and I, who did that famous royal wedding sermon a few months ago, uh, had been meeting and talking, and we put out this with other elders like Ron Sider and Tony Campolo, the Reclaiming Jesus Declaration last year, Reclaiming Jesus. It got five million responses around the world, five million. So clearly there's a hunger now for going back to Jesus. Coming, and my next book will be out in September is... It's about that. It's about it's reclaiming Jesus' book. How do we come back to Jesus? It's not a Trump book. It's a Jesus book. And this uh, this this moment, this crisis, crisis in Chinese is the two symbols for danger and opportunity. So we have an opportunity here in this crisis uh, to come back to Jesus, and that's what we're. That's what I think is the answer to this crisis right now. So that's where we are now, almost 50 years later. Does it feel weird to try to summarize it in just a few minutes? 
But that was a good, good exercise. Yeah. <laughs> Well, a, a recent poll found that evangelicals in America, despite the widespread information about how their votes support racism and homophobia and xenophobia and misogyny and sexism and, and so on, they will continue to vote red at the voting booths. And it seems like now more than ever, there's this push for a, a theocratic government from American evangelicals. And w- would you be willing to speak into this? And what do you see happening and 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 how local church yeah. pastors can speak into this. Well, let me correct that, that data. The data says 81% of evangelicals, the media says voted for Donald Trump. That's not true. 81% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. I was just on an NPR show before this call. And um, if you poll all just the evangelicals, uh, black evangelicals, Hispanic evangelicals, Asian American evangelicals, Almost very few voted for Donald Trump. If you pull all the evangelicals 50-50, complete racial split, complete racial split. So it's about white evangelicals. So as I said to one of Trump's advisors on this radio show um, just an hour ago, if you put the word white evangelical up, that phrase, the operative word is not evangelical. It's white. White Christian. Same. It's white. When the operative word is white and not evangelical or Christian, we have a serious theological problem, not just a political one. So um, they're concerned about them being made marginal, as he was saying, religious liberty and all that. Well, black Christians have been marginal for years in, in white evangelical churches or even around them. So that's the issue. It's the elephant in the room. Elephant in the room is that by 2041, we're no longer a white majority nation. The body of Christ globally is the most diverse human community in the world. The head of all the African evangelicals wrote last week and wants a partnership with us as sojourners. They're black evang- African evangelicals. So this is a this is a white American Christian problem. It's not a theological issue. It's Romans. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. We are conformed to the country that I, in my last book called Guilty of America's Original Sin. Uh, that's the issue. It's, it's an ideology. It's a, it's a myth. It's a lie. Uh, it, it, it's an idolatry. Um, I spoke to most of the heads of the churches this year in a small room with all these head churches. And I said, if racism is a myth and a lie, a social construct is the sociologists say, they say that, I should say lie, then our people, white people, are living a lie. <laughs> If it's an ideology, we're conformed politically to that. If it's an idol, idols in the Bible separate us from God. So I said, your pastors or churches full of white people and this idolatry of whiteness, of white race, of white supremacy, of white privilege, of white normality, this idol is separating white Christians, your people, from God. That's a pastoral issue, not a political one. So that's what we're, that's who's going to navigate this new world for America. I think the churches have a chance to help navigate that world, but only if we become Christian or evangelical before white. And we have a long way to go with that. But that's the issue. At the heart of all this is are we going to, like, as I was told as a kid, are we going to be Christians first? I say, yeah, that's a good idea to be Christians first. 
This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we believe God has called and empowered congregations to change the world. For 25 years, Center consultants, coaches, and educators have been supporting congregations, clergy, and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life, including training ministers to manage transition, helping congregations work through polarizing conflict, coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry, and assisting congregations in discerning God's call to future missions and ministry. Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. You know, because this is such a... um partisan and entrenched culture we are, especially among white evangelicals, that many of our listeners are local church pastors that yeah. are, are trying to hold They're the stuck. Bible in, in one hand and the newspaper, or I guess, you know, their iPhones in the other, reading the news of, of what's happening around them. And they want to speak into those things, but oftentimes what is spoken is received as uh, as partisan. So, you know, what suggestions would you have for local church pastors who want to help navigate uh, maybe not in a one-off sermon thinking they can say everything, but what does it look like long-term to help a congregation navigate yeah. the issues we're seeing? First of all, there's no, there's no, um, there is a religious right that's out there and uh, we know who their leaders are. That's one of the ones I just spoke with on this radio show, but I'm not the religious left. I don't want the left to, to wrap their politics around their faith like the right does. <laughs> Uh, that's why I say, let's be followers of Jesus. Let's let's go back to Jesus. Let's reclaim Jesus. Don't go left. Don't go right. Go deeper. Uh, there's legitimate political different philosophies. Whether a guaranteed in, guaranteed income is best for poor people or a uh, 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 you know a EITTC a, a tax credit or these are these are legitimate issues. We're not even facing a Republican Democratic problem right now. Let me be clear, as Republicans I know tell me all the time, Donald Trump isn't a Republican. Uh, he's not even, even a conservative. Uh, what we're facing right now is he had a strong man with him in the White House yesterday, uh, the leader of Hungary, strong man now all over the world. Uh, Donald Trump is is a, he, he's one of those leaders. He's, he wants to be a dictator, a tyrant. And the problem is, from a Christian point of view, the foundation of that is indeed white nationalism all over the world. We had a, a shooter in, in Christchurch, New Zealand, who was one of those white nationalists, and he, he talked about the white nationalists like Dylan. Dylan Roof, I just saw the film Emmanuel last night um, and was with the families who were killed by this white nationalist. He wasn't a disturbed, mentally ill kid. That's easy for us to say as white people. He was a white nationalist. They have websites, they have, they inspire each other. And this one in in New Zealand, he, he picked up Dylan Roof as someone who inspired him and also Donald Trump. Now, no one's saying Donald Trump did a shooting but he's, he's a champion of an ideology that is now the greatest terrorist threat in America. 
So this isn't about Republicans. I mean, I knew George W. Bush. I know him. We, we, and, and Barack Obama, uh, we would all call each other friends, different political philosophies. This is not that. This is the soul of the nation is at stake, as well as the integrity of faith. So there are principal conservatives I know, conservative Christians I know, that, that, that just can't deal anymore with this white nationalist leader. So how do you, the pastors, how do we, what we can't let happen is political polarization keep us from speaking the truth about the gospel. You don't have to become partisan, but the truth about the gospel, you've got to call out racism, call out white nationalism in all our churches, whether they're Republican or Democrat. And when we don't, you have to love your people enough to preach the gospel to them. Now, I'm a pastor all the time, and I go, I, right now I do, do the ones in, in Missouri and Kansas and Nebraska. And they say, oh, thank you for not flying over, but flying down. <laughs> so I love to have these conversations with pastors. I was uh, in uh, Nashville uh, just this week with pastors all over the place in Nashville uh, talking about how to protect people, how to protect uh, you know, voting rights, how to protect from racial policing. How to, you know, how to protect the people Jesus talked about in that text that was my conversion text. Um, and it was a powerful thing to, to see. I did their annual fundraising dinner. Uh, and, you know, that, the gospel is alive in many places. But when we, let me be blunt here, when pastors allow the partisanship thing to keep them from what that really is, if you think about it, it's a white veto. A white veto. It's coming from white people. It's a white veto of the gospel. The gospel has to be lifted up. So in my new book, in the fall, it's just raising Jesus' questions, the ones he asked or prompted. Who is my neighbor? What is the truth? Who is the greatest? How do we protect the stranger? These are Jesus' questions. And regardless of who you vote for, you've got to answer Jesus' questions. So that's why we want to reclaim Jesus. We want to come back to him. And we have avoided him for so long in our churches, particularly white churches, that we got to come back to Jesus here. So what about Jesus becomes a question, not whether you like Hillary Clinton or not. <laughs> so our we can't let our politics... Uh, fold over our faith. We've got to have our faith break out our politics. And that isn't, uh, I don't agree with Democrats on their, on their abortion stance. They're extreme. Democrats on abortion are extreme. And I talk to them about that on a regular basis. Um, but you can't just be pro-birth. You've got to be pro-life. If you're pro-life, it means wherever life is threatened. So when kids are born and they're kids of color, they're no longer a concern for their religious right. <laughs> so so let's what does it mean to to break open the categories and feel often politically homeless like I often do? Homeless politically. But let's talk the gospel. So I think I I think in a crisis um there is both danger and opportunity. And I think it takes crisis to make change. So it could be that if this terrible political, cultural, and I think 
increasingly violent civil violent crisis. Uh, this could take us to a deeper place, uh, deeper into our relationship with Christ. That's what our Christian faith is about, deeper into our relationship with each other across racial lines, and deeper into our relationship with the poorest and most vulnerable, the least of these. If this crisis causes us to go deeper, and not just be polarized, but go deeper, I think there could be some redemption coming out of this crisis. You know, uh, evangelicalism has its is extremes, um, the right to the left. And, uh, you know, certainly it, it creates a, a clear and distinct theological bent for, for some churches. So what would it look like for, instead of us creating red churches and blue churches, what would it look like for us to create purple congregations? Well, you know, the word evangelical is coming up in our conversation. It came up in the in this show the last hour. Uh, let me define it the way Jesus did. In his Jesus opening opening sermon, his mission statement, his first press conference, his first gig was at Nazareth when he talked about his vocation. Quoting Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. The word there for good news in Greek is evangel. Evangel. That's where we get evangelicalism and evangelism. Evangel, good news to the poor. Release the captives. Recover the sight of the blind. Set at liberty those who are oppressed. That was Jesus' opening gig, statement, mission. That's how I define evangelical. So when you think evangelical, do you think of good news to the poor, setting captives free, healing the sick, recovery sight, and setting the oppressed free? Is that what we think of when we think of evangelical? So that's our test. It's Jesus' own definition there. So I'm less concerned about church colors, which is a political term, but whether we want to principally be followers of Jesus or not. The idea of um, of um, America first, for example, that's a theological heresy. <laughs> it's just a heresy. We're at the body of Christ globally. Uh, America first is, is a theological heresy. White nationalism is anti-Christ. It's a sin against God. So how big or small you think government should be, whether you, uh, you know, those are all fair political questions. We got to call out the gospel in an election season this time. Call out the gospel. And I know a lot of, uh, particularly young people, uh, there, there was a Dorothy Day, the Catholic worker leader now, about to become a saint, was one of my mentors. And I would go to see her in New York at the Catholic Worker House, and there was a big graffiti on this building next to her place. It's not there anymore, but it said, uh, I was a, said, reporter, Mr. Gandhi, what do you think of Western civilization? Gandhi, I think it would be a good idea. <laughs> then I, so I added in now, reporter, what do you think of Christians following Jesus? Millennial, I think that'd be a good idea. <laughs> so an awful lot of the, the none of the above, you know, the nuns, who don't want them affiliated with us. A lot of Christians are afraid of them. I love them. They're at all of our events. Most believe in God, and they want to hear about Jesus. They don't want to affiliate with religion. 
because of what we're doing and not doing. But they're so hungry for a serious talk about Jesus. So I'm very hopeful about that. And I think uh, there are Christians who have legitimate differences with political parties, uh, you know, Democrats on these issues, Republicans on these issues. Uh, but let's talk about Jesus again. And, you know, these are hard questions. Who is my neighbor? What does that mean? You know, what does that mean about taking immigrant children from their parents at the southern border and putting them in cages? What, what about Jesus is the question. So um, I want to have the Jesus question talked about. And if someone says, I agree with Jesus' teaching, but I'm against what you think, fine, let's have a discussion about that. What does it mean? Uh, let's have that conversation. So I don't want to attach a color to it, but we shouldn't be defined by colors, by red or blue or purple or whatever. We should be defined by the questions Jesus asks us. And is it possible? Yeah, I think it is. I'm going around the country having really good conversations, uh, large conversations that are multiracial, that are intergenerational, um, uh, women being very much a part of them, not just men. And I come, I come back to the hotel at night where I'm preaching or, or speaking, and I'm encouraged until I turn on the news <laughs> and hear our national narrative. So this is a crisis with real dangers ahead, real dangers. If we, uh, as you say, if we move toward an autocrat, as people are all over the world, we're in great danger. Democracy's in danger. But if we come back to Jesus and, and understand the kingdom of God is not polit politically contained by right or left, red, blue, or purple, the kingdom is our vision of things. How do we bring that into our, you know, our cultural life, our church, our churches, our workplaces, our water coolers, uh, our schools? How do we bring Jesus back into the conversation? I'm hopeful about that that being possible. Hmm. Well, I guess if, if you remove the color, the question, I guess, of the bare roots is is theological diversity. You know. Uh, mm -hmm. Some people, you know, the process of, of where we get to uh, our theological convictions can be put into words, oftentimes for ministers, that happens so much in our heads and during the week that we what we present is a clear and concise perspective into where we are. And many of our congregants aren't afforded the same opportunity, not to say that they don't have the, the personal responsibility to do that. So, I guess maybe how do we how do we create that theological diversity to allow people who are right, left, everywhere in between where we can dialogue about these things and not feel like we have to, you know, re-entrench ourselves, but can create space to listen and to, to speak into uh, the truths we're finding in our life. And that's where I think, uh, you know, um, we, there's some issues we have to call out in different political identity places. One is, is racism. Uh, this can't be a left-right issue. This can't be a, a, a red-blue issue. This is about the gospel. This is this is about the image of God. Um, you know, uh, John once says that uh, in, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. So in Genesis, God says, "Let us let us create human beings in our image, in our likeness." But since you can't 
do to indigenous people and kidnapped Africans or what we did to them, you can't do that to people made in the image of God. So we'll say they weren't really, not fully, three-fifths of a person constitution. And we'll, we'll say they're not quite like us or as good as we are. That, that's the original sin of this country, not slavery per se, that we racialized it. So how do we call out racism in all of our churches? Despite stands on other issues, that's going to be called out as a sin against God and antichrist in all of our churches. So how do we, and, and I, when you see refugees being taken in by different kinds of churches, as you say, different kind of theology, but somehow when we take in those who need to be welcomed, it, it, it bonds us, it strengthens us, it, it makes us in deeper relationship with the body of Christ worldwide. So I think there are fundamental issues and, and truth. The truth is not just how many times the president lies, the truth is that there really is truth. And autocrats always try to undermine the idea of truth and just say, listen to me, we can't do that. Jesus says, you know the truth and the truth will set you free. Uh, fear is in our politics all the time. Uh, you had in this last election, you had a White House running on fear, fear of caravans, fear of immigrants, fear of uh, all kinds of things that had no base in fact, but make us afraid. Jesus says, be not afraid over and over and over again. What does that mean? So I think, I think it's not sort of a getting to a political compromise at the center that we need. It's, it's forgetting left or right, red or blue and saying, okay, um, what do we do with immigrants and asylum seekers? What does Jesus say? Uh, what do we do with truth not being told or even acknowledged or respected? We say we must know the truth, and that will set us free. What do we do with power being named wealth and power as what leadership is? Jesus says foot washing is what leadership is. That's very different. So how do we have a Jesus conversation in the face of our politics, not just compromising left and right, or what's a center position on this or that. So I think that's possible. And I, I talk about that with, with mostly white pastors in Midwest states who are feeling exactly what you're talking about. I hear it all the time. And, and if this brings us all back to preaching the gospel, uh, the full gospel, then I think there could be even some redemption in this crisis. But we face real danger and anything could happen now in this country. Does that make sense? It does. Uh, you, you mentor a, a lot of people. Um, who should we be reading and listening to right now that, that maybe doesn't have the national platform? Oh, um, one of my, my favorite, um, teachers, uh, preachers is Walter Brueggemann, who uh, spoke at our last kind of, our leadership summit is half always people of color, half women. And Walter comes in as this little white guy. And he, he, in fact, he was too sick to come and did it by video. I've never seen a standing ovation to a video before, but he talked about the gospel in this time. And then there's a whole bunch of voices that, uh, you know, I, um, uh, this show I was just, just on was with a young uh, Asian-American 
evangelical leader, Adam Taylor here, my executive assistant just came on, uh, African-American leader for the future. Uh, there's a good book by Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove about slave master religion that is worth a read coming out. So there's a whole bunch of Peggy Flanagan, who's now the highest ranking Native American uh, political leader. She's Lieutenant Governor of Minnesota as a Native woman who's Catholic, and she's I'm her adopted father. So she stayed with us for years when she's in town. And when she talks about one Minnesota, it's really very powerful. It's not demographic determinism or or kind of a politically correct diversity is how do people who are not the same, how do they find common ground? How do they want to look out for each other's kids? Um, so I find uh, a lot of young voices out there, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, Julian DeChazier, pastor in Chicago, who's also known as Jay Quest. He's a rapper and a pastor in the South Side. And uh, he's the kind of young voice that I love to hear. So there's lots of young people out there who want to break out of this. Um, uh, in my book in God's Policy, I say, while the right gets it wrong, the left doesn't get it. That's as true as it ever was. Break out of the left-right polarization, break out of the, uh, this political cap on everything, which is terrible in this, in this town. So um, I think uh, uh, those voices are worth worth listening to so it sounds like you've got a, a book coming out in september that we need to be looking out for but what else is next for you well um i i think uh, uh the book's called christ in crisis it's not it's not announced yet but you're, you're not coming out until mid-june right uh, yeah yeah for this podcast okay they, they probably wouldn't want me to say it in May, but probably in mid-June, we're okay. It's called <laughs> Christ in Crisis, uh, Why We Need to Reclaim Jesus. Um, but um, uh, I think the election is going to be important, uh, not just to make political battles, but to have a better and deeper talk about faith and politics. Um, some of the Democratic candidates are wanting to talk about that. Um, some of them have underlined Bibles, but they don't never talk about it. Uh, it was very interesting to me when, when uh, a young millennial mayor from the Midwest, from, from uh, South Bend, Indiana, a conservative state, and a married gay man began talking about his faith and Jesus. It was, nobody expected that, and it's, it's helped kind of shake up the conversation. So the religious right is terrified by Mayor Pete because when you listen to them, you never hear about Jesus. And you're listening to him, you hear about Jesus. They don't want the conversation to be about Jesus. But the secular left, some of them, they don't want that either. And some of them are secular fundamentalists, like the religious fundamentalists I fought my, my whole life. And they want the world to think that all religion, this is where some of the secular left people agree with the religious right. They want the world to think all religion is right wing. That's what they want the world to think. Well, all of a sudden, the monopoly on religion being controlled by Republicans is coming to an end. So how do you have a whole new conversation? And I never endorse a candidate. What I do endorse is a deeper, fuller, richer conversation 
about faith and politics. So to me, that's what's, what's uh, ahead for us in this critical moment where we don't let politics control our faith, but we try to have, have faith shape our politics, which are very different things. Well, for those that want to follow Jim, you can find him on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, check out his work and writing at sojo.net. Uh, Jim, we are grateful for 50 plus years of challenging us to turn back to Jesus and for how we navigate these, this very challenging life journey. Well, great to be on this. And I, I want to encourage all you people listening. This is, this is going to happen at the local level. <laughs> it won't happen in Washington. It's going to happen there first and then maybe find its way to Washington. So keep it up. Don't give up. Well, that's it. That's our episode. Be sure to check out our annual sponsors' websites, the Center for Congregational Health at healthychurch.org and Fuller Seminary at fuller.edu. For more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, including stories about our church starters, field personnel, leadership development, peer learning groups, and advocacy, visit cbf.net.